Welcome to Private Practice Podcast. You're Dan Brown and I'm James Hall and let's get straight into the small talk, small talk, because I've prepared my small talk. <laughs> You've prepared your small talk. I'm imagining it's it's going to be really good then. I'm just waving it at the screen for Dan. I've written some notes on a yeah. piece of paper. I've got two topics for small... <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> Topic one. <laughs> Imagine we don't know each other and we've just met at a party and you said your name is Dan, I've said my name is James and now yep. we make small talk. Here's how it goes. First thing I'm going to say to you, number one on my small talk list is yes. that uh, usually, well, no, the reason mm-hmm. I said usually there is interesting simply because that just came out straight away. The word is always, but always makes it sound obsessive. And it is obsessive, and you're about to find out it's obsessive, but I use the word usually, okay. which is interesting. Anyway, so always... Wait, so, so wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Let's just backtrack slightly. Is this how you would approach someone at a party? Well, probably. This, is, I this mean, is what you'd give them? Yeah, this is exactly how it goes wrong for me in life. Okay, all right, well, let's... I don't want you to edit that out because I think that's really important for the listener to understand that they might be experiencing problems like this. But let's just try again. I'm Dan, you've just found out my name, you're James. Go on, small talk, topic one. <laughs> Every year, so that's always, not usually, I compile a list of my favourite songs of the year and I go into a lot, I make, I, I, I make a lot of effort. I design graphics for it, I do little GIF-like build-up JPEGs that I uh, drop mm-hmm. unsolicited into people's WhatsApp message inboxes, and this year is no different. And um, but you quite often uh, either my favourite song of the year or somewhere in the top ten will be some kind of obscure French electro. This year is no different at all. However, it seems like all the olds have been bored in lockdown because this year we've got Elton John, ABBA. Paul McCartney, uh, the list goes on, Stevie Wonder. It's basically like the chart of 1979. Do you want to talk about music in 2021 or are you happy with that first point in small talk and shall I move on to the second one? (laughs) I see. see. So so you're telling me something there. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, your charts each year are really good and I generally save them and I always find three or four songs that I definitely don't know and I like um, and I'll usually follow whoever that artist is on Spotify. Um, Other streaming services are available. Um, And, and yeah, it's a really good, worthwhile use of your time and I really respect that you do that. And I even like the build-up to it. Not that I get bombarded with it. You usually just drop maybe a flyer into my... WhatsApp chat, which is nice, and I know perhaps what's coming and can, can have a little listen. But I like that you've got the playlist all set up if someone wanted to have a James Hall-inspired party. Um, 
I, you know, I like that a lot of the music's often new music and also often new to me. But I think, you know, it's also nice to respect some of those absolutely classic artists of the late uh, 20th century. And I think you, you named some of the big ones there, all of whom I admire and like some of their music at least. So, yeah, that's great. Do keep doing it. I hope you never stop doing that. Um, and perhaps even, you know, you could put a link uh, uh, on the Private Practice uh, podcast page to those uh, uh, playlists because they are very good. Number two on my small talk list, and this is two of two, just so that you're... Uh... Not like when uh-huh. you download um, a new s- software update on your laptop and it says updating and it gets all the way to the end of the line and then starts again from the scratch. I'm not going to do that with small talk. This is two of two. Uh, last time, no, previous to last time on Private Practice Podcast, episode three of our distortion series, uh, uh-huh. we looked at framing. And I gave an example that was all about me, like, (laughs) for example, uh, if I'm framing, here's how I do it. Uh, If people were to say something about me and they were to frame me in a certain way, here's how it would sound. There we go. We've done framing. Next topic. But then I heard someone talking about framing um, just by coincidence in an interview last week. And they gave an example that had nothing to do with me, which would have been a much better example uh, for me to give in the podcast, because then it would have uh, seemed much less self-aggrandizing, um, self-centered, anything else you want to prefix with self. And the example that they used was um, Asian Americans and how uh, people frame them as either basically white people when it comes to the success of Asian Americans in education and then suddenly they're an ethnic minority when it comes to hate crimes against Asian people and this was just an example of framing depending on how you start the sentence so like uh, uh, minorities in our society such as Asian people dot 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 versus um, the uh, huge Overrepresentation of Asian people means that these poor people don't have a chance. And it's the same people. Okay, I don't 100% understand, but I get the general idea of what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, the same with, you know, um, you could think of um, IV drug users as being the most vulnerable people in our society, or you could see them as the the scourge of our society, you know, the um, the shoplifters, the housebreakers, the people leaving needles in playgrounds, the people spreading HIV and other contractible, you know, um, illnesses. Um, or you could see them as people who'd had the most traumatic time and need the most amount of help. Do you have anything you want to contribute to Small Talk other than reaction to my two things on my list? I mean, it was a great small talk, so I, I think we should probably just leave it there, you know. Cue outro music. Which, as ever, you need to provide now. Mm. Small talk, small talk, wasn't that a really good small talk? Do-do-do-do, topic one, and do-do-do-do, topic two.
So this week on Private Practice Podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that's it, this week. Also, you call me Dan Brown this week. I'm Daniel P. Brown in the Private Practice Podcast studios. Daniel P. Brown. Oh, that uh, makes you sound much more professional, which is excellent for today because uh, we're having a look at a new topic and similar to uh, distortion, but more appropriate for this is... The difference between Dan and I. Dan is very much the person who has the knowledge and expertise to whatever extent to bring to this conversation. And I'm going to be the naive one putting my hand up and asking the questions. So uh, you could say that I am representing you the listener, if you know nothing about the topic, whereas if you, the listener, are a practitioner in the topic, you can listen to Dan's answers, feel an affinity with him until he says something that you don't think you would have said, and then you can feel smug and superior. Yeah, which I, I totally support and, and agree with. Um, I forever think of myself as a fraud when talking about topics that I'm not highly trained in, and even topics that I am relatively highly trained in I, I probably feel like I should and could know more um so yes uh you know mental health nurses background although we do always say James that I'm not really here as a professional I'm here more <laughs> as a as a sounding board with some experience in the arena of mental health but yes and you you're here as as the sort of the layman idiot yes and up until now, in this, just since the small talk, uh, I've provided more than enough opportunities for Dan to step in and say what the topic is, and he hasn't taken any of them. So for once, I'm the one who is not failing the autistic test or succeeding in the autistic test, depending on how you see it. So therefore, Wait. I'm going to save the day and say the topic no. this week is no. psychoanalysis. No. no, that is not what happened. Listener, dear listener, I d please excuse my frustration here, but something that you can't possibly know about within the dynamic of this podcast is the is the forever story that we have of James in the moment believing that there has been enough time or an obvious question or a pause or a moment or a beat in order for me to fill in the gaps with something that he imagined should be there. However, when listening back and editing and the process of creating the final episode, which gets um, put out for you to listen to, he will realise that that was not the case at all. There was no specific moment there for me to say, dear listener, this week the topic is that of psychoanalysis. You know, but I just wanted to point out that I was ready. I've got my definition from the 1970s. Remember this old book, James? We love this old book. It cost 5D at the time, published by Penguin Books, the Dictionary of Psychology, published first in 1952. <laughs> so we're going with the most up-to-date definition we can find. But I did have my... Um, I did have my definition ready to go, James, but uh, that pause you thought was there was not there. I'm going to take this as a pause for me to ask, so Dan, what is psychoanalysis? And then you can answer with your finger already on the right page of the book and it'll be seamless. Dan. So James. Three, two, one. Dan, what is psychoanalysis? Well, James, I'm glad you asked. 
Psychoanalysis is a system of psychology and a method of treatment of mental and nervous disorders developed by Sigmund Freud, characterised by a dynamic view of all aspects of the mental life, both conscious and unconscious. It has special emphasis upon the phenomena of the unconscious and by an elaborate technique of investigation and treatment based on the employment of continuous free association. Oh, OK. Well, actually, because my first question was not what is psychoanalysis. It's just that that was obviously the perfect question for that moment. My question was a little bit more lofty because I'm the kind of person who knows the altitude of his coffee beans. So... <laughs> Do you mean the current altitude of your coffee beans or the altitude where they were grown? The current altitude, they're on the fourth floor. <laughs> oh, that high. Um, just, no, let, again, let's, uh, let's backtrack because you wanted okay. to do this topic today. Why did James Hall want to talk about this topic, psychoanalysis, which we have touched on in the past. Um, we've also done a mini-series on the unconscious. If you want a real deep dive into what we do and don't know about that topic... Um, why did you want to talk about the unconscious mind again and, of course, the topic of psychoanalysis today? Uh, two reasons. One is simply because the last four episodes we've done have been to do with more modern forms of therapy, specifically cognitive behavioural therapy, and associated techniques that you can do uh, to try and solve problems. But um, that's just half the picture. And not, and I don't, not necessarily 50%. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's an aspect of the picture. That's a framing of the picture. And what's outside of that frame is the rest of psychoanalysis, which, which was originally, was the, um, originally was my interest in making this podcast to find out more about psychoanalysis in season four we were we were quite specific because each episode was a very specific topic within psychoanalysis such as hysteria or paranoia uh, and there, there were lots of things that happened in season four that we kind of thought we would want to come back to, and we have. So, for example, the episode on CBT versus Freud, we've just made an entire mini-series coming back to that. Uh, and I guess now is the other half of that, which is the Freud bit as opposed to the CBT bit. So that's one. But then, in other words, just because as a podcast maker, <laughs> I feel like this is a topic that is something we've set up and really deserves to be returned to. The other is just because I, and this is probably the more interesting answer that you were getting at, is because uh, I've never had um, proper psychoanalysis. I've always been fascinated by it and I still have questions and I wonder if my questions might be similar to the listeners' questions. So, therefore, since you have yourself had therapy, I can ask you questions. 
and you can answer them. Sounds good to me. And yes, I have had therapy and I'm indeed back in therapy. And I've tried all the different therapies, I think. There's probably a few more that, uh, of the more um, obscure ones that I haven't tried. But I will. I will. Um, okay, so first part of the answer was we've touched on it and explored certain aspects of it before and you thought coming back to it might be a nice refresher and the second part of it was because you're really interested in it but for some reason won't dive into it and start therapy yourself well let's start with that then so why not i was thinking just before we started recording it's easy to say for example that i imagine a very high cost financial cost involved in something that is, I feel, kind of a luxury in the sense that I'm very lucky that generally I get by in life with a pretty good state of mind. I enjoy making this podcast. I'm not immune to any uh, um, problems with my state of mind. I could easily get uh, frustrated, anxious, depressed or anything like that, just like anyone can. But given my um, knowledge from talking about all the things that we talk about and given my interest in reading books, reading Carl Rogers, reading Carl Jung, reading people who aren't called Carl, means that it's, it's quite easy, I find, for me to, uh, to work my self into a decent state of mind and putting in the effort and so on um that flow book was very helpful it's 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 not like a life philosophy you just flow your way through life and that's it but it's a useful thing combined with all the other things which is why we made a whole series on it um so i feel like if i were to spend a lot of money to have one-on-one therapy where i could really indulge uh like I could just indulge selfishness to the max and um, thoroughly explore how I can improve myself. It would be an expensive luxury. And for some reason, I find it very easy to say, oh, no, it's better to save money for a deposit for a house or, um, oh, no, it's better not to do that whilst I'm freelance because... You know, it's uh, it's not a good idea to be reckless when you don't have a contract. Well, it's better not to do that at the moment because, you know, like, for example, when I was renting my own flat in London for a year, there's no way I was going to do uh, psychoanalysis sessions given the price of my rent that year. So, And then travelling, I mean, obviously I'm not going to just have a an analyst come on tour with me these days it's different because there are so many services provided with with video link but I don't particularly want the video link I don't want to sit and look at a laptop I want to go to someone's room and sit on their sofa and have the full thing so a combination of logistical and irrational core belief obstacles have always prevented me from having something that absolutely fascinates me and it doesn't make any sense because I mean I could very much not have spent six months in the south of France this summer and saved a lot of money but uh, just in case the listener is getting irritated and jealous at the idea that I had a luxurious six-week holiday 
in the south of France. Firstly, um, it was actually only a two-week holiday and the rest of the time I was working. Secondly, it's not very stoic of you to get angry and jealous upon hearing about my six weeks in France. And thirdly, how interesting it is that I'm being very defensive about my six weeks in France. Over to you, Dan. It's very very interesting. Um, I mean, that was a long answer, wasn't it? Uh, um, What would a therapist say if I gave an answer that long? (laughs) um, They'd definitely take a moment to think about it. There was a a lot in there, James. There was a lot. what do what do you what do you feel about that? What 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 do you feel is the you know if you if you kind of went on a kind of a gut instinct? What would you think the most important thing is about why you have never undertaken since in the what? How long have we been we've been doing this? About six years now. This podcast. Uh, we started in twenty seventeen, but we kind of built up to it before that anyway. So something like that. Okay, so so say five years we've been doing this podcast. So what what do you think is the the main reason why you haven't bitten the bullet and and even gone for a few you know assessment sessions or trial sessions with a a psychoanalyst to see if you could meet someone who could ask the kind of questions that you appear to want to be asked? I don't know. Maybe it's an irrational fear of being reckless with money or maybe it's a sense of shame associated with being extremely self-centered mhm okay interesting because i don't think going to therapy is selfish i think in essence quite the opposite although you might be indulging in you know exploring your own thoughts for me at least you know the process of uh, analysis the process of therapy was to try and help me improve my relationships and improve my honesty and my integrity and and help me become more myself so that I could actually function in a more you know I suppose what I consider like moral and ethical you know by my own standards moral and ethical um behavior um philosophy and 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 I, and I wanted to go there to kind of give up some of the selfishness that you know that I think I had developed over my lifetime so I saw it as the opposite of that and you know that I was paying to work towards being like a better version of me not just for myself and not just so that I could think you know incredibly highly of myself but but so that I could be better for others for my family and my you know my and those I was you know intimate with um that was my reasoning for going into therapy that's how we talk about therapy I mean I've said uh, words to some extent that parallel what you've said about how going into having any form of therapy or doing anything that we've discussed, including mindfulness meditation or stoicism. This is just a way of making yourself a slightly better person and therefore improving your relationships with other people. But that's how I describe it for other people. That's not how I internally describe it for myself. Internally, I describe it as the only child indulging his uh, self-centred desires to make everything all about himself 
to the max. <laughs> so it's like one rule for everyone else and a different one for myself. Yeah, which kind of adds um, evidence to the reason for the need to go into therapy. You know, it's like a kind of an avoidance or a defence mechanism. You know, what if they find out what you're really like in therapy <laughs> and then you have to accept it? Um, okay, all right. So you have, of course, a list of written questions, don't you, that you wanted to start exploring today? Are there, is there any? Are there? Is there anything else about this? Why you haven't been into therapy yourself that you might like to say to the listener who you've been talking to for five years about therapy? Well, I suppose to some extent, the fact that we make this podcast and I talk to you and I read all these books, um, to some extent, that that makes me think. Well, I'm not right now. Is not the time for me to also invest in actual actually having therapy even though my interest in the topic suggests it would be very worthwhile because for now I'm finding it very satisfactory reading books listening to podcasts and making podcasts but now that we've been doing that for many years um it, frankly I'm to some extent glad that I've never actually done it because my interest hasn't gone away it's only got greater despite and despite the fact that I still haven't done it which means to some extent I'm telling myself I'm delaying it but the whole po the whole uh the whole delay has not dampened my enthusiasm it's more I'd say the opposite um but 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 more than that it's made me feel more kind of like purposeful about why I would do it as opposed to just sitting there and uh, desperately trying not to frame my life and wondering how I can possibly explain three decades to someone so that they fully understand me and couldn't possibly say anything about me without knowing the appropriate amount of context, which, of course, in my view, is every single atomic movement that's happened since 1987. <laughs> Yeah, um, and and it may well be that you know you you do need a lot of sessions to get a lot of that out of your system, and I think probably a lot of people would understand that going into therapy, you want to give every every part of the context to this therapist firstly perhaps so they don't misunderstand you, but also so that they've got everything that they they need to really understand who you are and to be able to help you and to be able to guide you and to be able to you know uh, really know what's going on for you but that's not necessarily the case because you can go on what a person brings in the moment what they're feeling that day or you can look back at a person's history or you can explore a certain element of their life or their relationships or their family history or their work life or their responses or like the definition just said, you just go with the free association, you know, whatever comes into that person's mind as they sit back, put their feet up, close their eyes and, and say whatever is on their mind and which words are coming to them. So although you might go into therapy thinking, as you've just described, James, you may well quickly fall into a helpful pattern or behaviour within the, within the therapy room. Um, and it's no reason to not go in. Otherwise, surely you're just extending the amount of backstory you have to tell your therapist. 
<laughs> well, I think um, I'm happy to not feel like someone needs to know everything that has ever happened since 1987 in relation to me in order to be qualified to say anything about me um, without jumping to conclusions, assuming inaccurately, being wide of the mark, etc. But that does that does pose a legitimate question if we make it slightly less extreme if you consider my view of uh, not wanting to frame anything as being extreme and you take someone who is happy to simply present themselves uh, concisely and trust the other person to react appropriately as opposed to thinking well you don't know I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who who end up going into therapy thinking, well, I don't trust my therapist because how can they possibly know me? I know myself better than anyone. I've lived with myself my whole life. Uh, But so so my question is, I'm not actually reading all my questions from my piece of paper uh, robotically, as I'm sure Dan hoped. I'm actually going with the flow of the conversation, uh, picking up on things Dan says that I think are appropriate to expand upon. It's almost like I've learned how to interact with other people. Mm, Big talk, not small talk. (laughs) So without the extreme of being um, extra suspicious or defensive or whatever it may be how how can a therapist be introduced to someone that they've only met for 15 minutes and have anything to say even if after not after 15 minutes after let's say six sessions if you've spent six hours with someone i feel to some extent like i can kind of answer this question but I to some extent I should just ask it on behalf of maybe the listener who 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 doesn't have an answer to the question what could a therapist what could what what could your therapist say about you after only six hours of knowing you that was any uh more valuable than someone who has known you for maybe 10 years and knows far more about you than the therapist, except you don't pay that person to be your therapist. You're paying someone who's only known you for six hours. How can they have anything to say about you that is more valuable than, say, someone who's known you for 10 years? Do you want the quick answer or the long answer? Or both? Both. Quick answer. Do you know the phrase... A fresh pair of eyes. Yes. Okay. So, in essence, someone coming in and seeing you for the first time out of the context of your relationships that you've built up over years where you have um, carefully moulded your personality or learnt from trial and error how to interact with other people, carefully hidden certain bits that you think are private, have been cautious of how other people think and feel and not wanting to offend, step on their toes, hurt or upset them, conscious of the context of their life and what they've been through. Therefore, although of course you are still yourself, you're yourself behaving. And of course we do hope that around our closest friends and maybe family maybe not so much for me, but maybe family, uh, maybe not so much for a lot of people, that you would be as much yourself as as you possibly can be. But the reality is, actually, in all of the relationships, work, 
intimate, um, close friends, wider friendship circle, out in public um, with your family, we still play a role. And there are still um, pressures and dynamics that are, at, that are at play. You know, it's... It, almost unheard of for most people to be able to go into a family situation and say you know um be 100 percent truthful about what's going on in their mind and their heart if you'll forgive that sounding a bit wishy-washy um and be able to talk about it and get a unbiased balanced reflection and view of what it was that you just said with um questions that are asked in a way that can be constructed very carefully and specifically to help you unpick unravel and understand yourself better you know classically when uh, a little you know when a child falls over and they are crying and they're tearful and there's no real injury the parent doesn't go that's interesting how are you feeling <laughs> why do you think you feel like that is there any way that you could feel differently about this? They don't. They go, come here. Oh, my darling, I love you. Oh, you poor thing. Have you got a boo-boo? Oh, no. You've. Oh, let's put a magic plaster on it. Kissy, kissy, better, better. Love, 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 right? That's the way a parent generally reacts to a child hurting themselves or being in distress. <laughs> Whereas a therapist doesn't do that. <laughs> Although it could be fun if they did. But, uh, you know, a therapist will talk about what you think about those feelings and and can you manage those feelings and how are you going to manage those feelings and what and what might be an interpretation and an understanding of those feelings um and obviously the context of a hurty scratchy knee isn't really 100 percent applicable to therapy but when you're talking about deep intimate personal distress and pain worry fear confusion uh, dynamics in relationships worries anxiety like the, the person who doesn't know you can actually see that potentially more clearly from the point of view as you as a human being rather than you as james hall this person that everyone has these contextual understanding and assumption of does that answer your question somewhat not only does it answer my question but it does so brilliantly if anything i'm dumbfounded by how satisfactory your answer was because i had many more things to say but i just don't feel like plowing on i feel like just giving a pause to appreciate the uh excellence with which you honed in on the most important and specific things to say in relation to my question well done dan thank you james can i say one more thing though that might it might actually muddy the water just for the fun <laughs> of it. um is that okay you were talking about how, how how can someone who's known you for six hours you know give you that much insight into yourself you know the the other answer could be well maybe they can't because actually psychotherapy uh, you know, psychoanalysis as we're talking about it today shall we put a little bit of a descriptor around what that is and 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 what we're talking about because the dictionary definition you know as useful as that might be to a psychologist or a mental health nurse or you know an analyst but um actually isn't that useful in essence when we're talking about psychoanalysis we're talking about someone who going into therapy usually paid for therapy it's very rare to get this on the nhs apart from in some very niche services um 
paying to see a therapist, usually in a private therapy room, just you and the therapist, um, two, three, four, or even five times a week. Usually once a week might not be considered to be true analysis because there's, there's too much space between sessions. So a regular therapy session that can go on potentially for years. Um, and these sessions can start off very much in silence from the therapist, just perhaps clarifying something you've said or asking a question. But actually, in essence, they will often leave long periods of silence in order for you to fill that space. Some therapists might think slightly differently depending on their training and try and kind of coax out some some thoughts and feelings from you. But in essence, it's a, a silent room. So the first few sessions from my therapy, I remember my therapist, Sarah, didn't say very much at all. Um, um, she might have asked a kind of a rhetorical question. I wonder whether you'd like me to dot, dot, dot. Or um, um, uh, it's interesting, but there wasn't a lot of silence today. You know, these these kind of things just open up the idea that perhaps I fucking talk too much. <laughs> well, actually, therefore, you know, like can I ask you then how just so in other words, you don't need to you don't need to go through every single therapy session you've ever uh, had or everything you've discussed Quite. or the reasons why, you know, you don't need to hang all your dirty laundry in the podcast if you don't want to but more like I'm not going to no just roughly how uh, as a kind of so rather than you know specific gossipy details more like as a as a structure given that you've been going to see one person for a long time how has essentially the formula of that hour in her room changed as she's spent more time with you if it indeed has so like you've just given the start of the answer to that she used to say very okay, little yeah, yeah, yeah. but now we're fast forwarding to five years and then 10 years later so I, I think probably for the first year or yeah probably for the first year I would have talked very much negatively and critically about myself and wanting to change and Sarah would have asked me open-ended questions or about why I might have said something in a certain way or what I thought about something I just said or what feelings came up for me or did I think it was interesting that I'd raised this topic however many times in the last however many weeks. Um, so we did that for about a year and there's no guidance in essence from the, the therapist. Over time, over two or three years, I might notice or you might you know if you were seeing the sessions you might see that I came in and say would start with my feelings this week I have been feeling dot 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 and outside of the sessions I may well have been less in my thoughts and more focused on what it was that I was feeling you know anxiety panic rage uh, disappointment sadness guilt and knowing that next week when I went in I could mention those feelings and then think about some of the thoughts that perhaps had gone with them and so over two or three years we talked very much about the feelings and you see patterns and I'd recognize the patterns okay three or four times a year my mood drops into a really difficult place to manage and and for that period of time my coping strategies for could be for example alcohol or recreational drugs or not seeing friends when actually talking 
out loud about what was going on, plus matching it with the feelings, plus thinking about how I behaved or interacted with others would give me the insight to know that I need to be careful because there is a cyclical pattern in my life whereby I um, drop into a low mood, do not respond behaviourally according to how I'm feeling that will be helpful in a way that will be helpful, do the exact opposite in a way that makes me more anxious, more paranoid, more tired, getting worse sleep, eating worse, yet the thing I needed to do is the exact opposite of how I behaved. And I started to recognise that. Sarah didn't necessarily point those things out to me, but potentially would have asked me, you know, do you think that there's anything you're doing at the moment that is helpful? And I'd spend two or three weeks going, this, that, and the other, this person, that person, this. And then, you know, again, a few weeks ago, I asked you if there's anything perhaps you were doing that was helpful. <laughs> You know, and it'd take me six months and I'd be like, oh, she's asking me what things I do that are helpful. And then I might start thinking, well, what things I do that are unhelpful? And, you know, it may take her a year of asking these open questions without telling me what it is that I need to do before I realise the pattern in myself, the pattern in therapy, the pattern in feeling and started perhaps slowly to think, maybe if I tried to get some early nights and didn't drink some nights and potentially lay off A, B, C, D, E. Potentially talk to some of the friends that I know actually look after me and care about me. Um, tell people when I'm feeling these things. Maybe even some issues in the family that I've brought up 30 times over five years that potentially I should either accept are not going to change if I don't do something about them or decide to take action to help change them. Uh, I think I did the first, so just accept they're not going to change because I'm not going to do anything about them. Um, and that then towards the end of the seven or eight years, you know, I'd be able to go into therapy, recognise the feelings, tell them to Sarah. She'd ask probably some more specific questions about these things. You know, what am I doing about it? Has that been helpful? You know, more of a conversation. Um, uh, but I'd go in with the feelings, with the thoughts, with the ideas about how it's affecting me, with some of the behaviours that I know that haven't been helpful and some that have, some of my hopes, some of my aspirations, and then maybe even say, Look, over the next couple of weeks, I might try and do this, that and the other. And then next time I come in, she'd ask me, have you been doing that? There wouldn't be any like, criticism for things I hadn't done there wouldn't be any major praise for things that I did um but she would often ask you know are you pleased with that do you think uh you, you made progress as you'd want to you know she probably wouldn't use the word progress actually but you know um and and the whole time that there was this sense and this this what my what Sarah was able to do was hold on to this idea that I'm an all right person even if I make all these stupid mistakes and that um you know there's good and bad in me but why would you focus on one rather than the other why not accept you're human we all have flaws and I'd got I'd get that sense from her and over time I get the sense that she was getting to know me not that she pretended to know me from week one two three four five or six or even month six even two years three years in but I think towards the end of the eight years when we were sort of working on an ending to say goodbye um I realized that she now knew me sort of inside out better than anyone else I'd said more to her than anyone and and she will always know all of that um and that's very important. Someone that knows me, it's someone that I could be have been honest with completely. Um, and she didn't judge me harshly. That's one of the key things that we've mentioned before, that you don't 
uh, we've mentioned it before in relation to Carl Rogers, the uh, the person who you go to see in therapy is meant to accept wholly everything that you say without judgment. Would you say that's a, oh, yeah. a vital aspect of uh, therapy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the reality is judgments and thoughts would come into her mind um, and she'd have to, her training would enable her to understand what it was bringing up in her. There's this, I still really struggle to understand this, but there's this process of something called transference and counter-transference where the two people in the room have um, physical and kind of psychological reactions to what the other person is saying and what the other person is feeling. And sometimes that's about uh, a personal thing. You know, so for example, if I was talking about my dad slowly dying of Alzheimer's and Sarah was starting to feel really sad and upset, partially it might be because I wasn't feeling those emotions, but I was talking about my dad and that Sarah was on behalf of me experiencing that as a kind of a way of helping me. But also there might have been a part of Sarah who had gone through something similar. i absolutely no idea and she would have been experiencing it for herself as well and also sometimes maybe there was something going on for the therapist and I'd go into the room and think oh you know uh I feel angry I feel sad I feel worried I feel troubled but I hadn't before I'd gone into the room and that was maybe me feeling something on behalf of Sarah that she wasn't able to so there's a really I mean I do struggle with this concept but because it's quite it's quite complicated, but people with the proper training in psychoanalysis obviously understand how to recognise and deal with that. What I just said, it's almost like I take it back. Let's think about uh, Irvin Yalom. Uh, for, for anyone who has been with us since 2017, you'll know that I really like Irvin Yalom and his book Love Sexecutioner that Dan lent me when we first started making these podcasts. Irvin Yalom writes as a therapist who uh, was practicing for years in San Francisco. He's still alive and still practicing, but I think he only has a handful of clients these days. Um, he's sort of like blurring into retirement, I think. But, uh, he, but when he writes, um, I mean, he doesn't, he, he doesn't breach confidentiality, but to the extent that he wants to and to the extent that it is appropriate, he is extremely honest about his himself in sessions. And so just now, there I was saying that, that one of the most important things about therapy is that the therapist doesn't judge you, as if I'd completely forgotten the, the times when I was relishing the next page of Love's Executioner when Irvin Yalom would talk about how um, his Tuesday at three o'clock would walk in and he would sink into his chair with, what's the word for, here is something that's about to happen that I don't want to happen. Well, anyway, the emotion that's associated with that. And he'd be thinking to himself, you're fat, you're ugly, you're boring, and I want to eat a donut. <laughs> yeah, and I think in that story, uh, in your long story, he, he's talking about the transference there, that he, he's feeling all that on behalf of the client. And over time, he worked out that actually 
it had to help that person understand that if that's the way that they see themselves, they're not going to be able to be happy, that they need to accept them. And also they're going to eat more donuts. You know, they're going to keep eating the donuts. You know, they're going to keep comfort eating because they see themselves as such a disgusting person. And one of the only things I think in that story that that person was able to do to bring themselves any joy, however short-lived, was to eat. Um, and yeah, so he was feeling all this on behalf of the client. And I think the client in that story, if I remember right, was just bad-mouthing everyone in the world. Everyone was a problem. And, you know, her daughter never visited her and her sister was a cow and, you know, everyone at the driving office was always rude to her when she went to do the paperwork and everyone in the supermarket was awful and no-one did their job properly. And so every time Bjelom saw this person, he was just disgusted by her. But that's actually, that's that's conducive to constructive therapy. It's not a problem. It's not like Irvin has failed at being a Rogerian therapist. He's got about as much unconditional positive regard as a stressed, overworked police officer. And so therefore he's just yet another charlatan taking people's money and not providing an effective service that they need. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think perhaps then to clarify then the unconditional positive regard, it, 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 it's not it's not the it's not the elevation of a therapist to a place where they never feel any of those feelings, but it's an understanding and acceptance of the feelings that are brought up in the therapist and being able to work with them. So Yolom didn't sit there and say out loud, "Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Oi, listen, you fat cow." Every time you come in here, you bore the shit out of me. I want to kill myself. I'm actually going to... I'm probably going to kill myself. You're so disgusting and ugly and fat and boring. I want to kill myself. He didn't say that stuff, but it came into his head and he had to understand why he was having these strong, disgust reactions to this very unhappy client. Well, and also just to... um... Just for context, Irvin Yalom wrote the introduction to... Um, a way of being which is I think the final book that Carl Rogers had published so uh, also it's not like he did not appreciate the concept of unconditional positive regard just in case the listener might be uh, wondering about the chronology of events there or the association Irvin Yalom was very much a fan of Carl Rogers to the extent that he wrote the introduction and uh, but another thing that I wanted to pick up on from what you said earlier was it's interesting to me I mean it's not a surprise to me but just for the purposes of this conversation it's interesting to me that you would go into therapy at the start delivering a catalogue of your emotions over the past 48 hours or so it would never occur to me to do that which is obviously going to be no surprise to you I would imagine this same therapist has just said goodbye to you and I'm her next client and I walk in and sit down and there's none of the this week I've been feeling anxious I've been feeling stressed I've been feeling anger towards my my brother or anything like that is I would be sitting there saying here are things that have happened this week here is my opinion of the things that have happened this week Yeah, I can. I mean, it, it, how 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 I 
used my therapy is no blueprint for how other people should so don't worry james and you also can't get it you can't get it wrong it probably wouldn't be here are things that have happened this week it would probably be a story that starts in 1993 but i'm not even joking it would be something like um in order for you for me to convey the way i feel about this person in my life right now let me tell a story about how I used to interact with my aunt back in 2000, which in 2021 informs why I get so frustrated. I mean, that's a feeling, frustration, but that's the extent of my listing feelings. So frustrated with the way things pan out, pan out in 2021 because I'm still searching for something that I'm not finding or, whatever, or however I would put it. So I am going to ask one of my questions that I've written down on a piece of paper. What is psychodynamic psychotherapy? I mean, that is a very good question. So shall we start with the definition? Psychodynamics is the study of mental and developmental processes from a dynamic point of view as a branch of psychology. Now, bear with me. Yeah, because what is a dynamic point of view? What do you think it is? Well, I feel like I have an idea just because I've read things on this topic. If I hadn't, I would not have a clue. I'm really not, not, even, not even a starting, like, not a clue. Totally abstract. Okay, so dynamic psychology is a psychology emphasising motives and drives used especially of their psychology by representatives of the analytical schools to be distinguished from dynamic theory. Now, what is dynamic theory? <laughs> dynamic theory, an aspect of the gestalt psychology, stressed by Kohler, according to which dynamic conditions, rather than structural in the sensory and central fields, determine the process taking place in these fields. In essence, I would say that dynamics is the... Um, relationship and context of two things. Oh, okay, right, yeah. But I, I, I think also there's something that I would personally say about therapy, which I suppose came from, well, probably came from Freud, but I would associate it with Carl Jung, which is simply to say that therapy is the process of making the unconscious conscious. And that definitely distinguishes it from cognitive behavioural therapy. But for the purposes of this conversation, rather than announcing that as fact, I'm now going to ask you, Dan. <laughs> how do you feel about that? Sorry, how do I feel about what? The main purpose of therapy is to make that which is unconscious conscious. Uh, yes, partially, yeah. I mean, so for me, the the main purpose of therapy is to... Is, is the process of developing a more integrated, grounded self. But doesn't so, that come from Carl Jung, the idea that you integrate the shadow with your conscious idea of self, so you, you no longer have all these problematic complexes that are compensating for all the things that you don't allow yourself to think about or that you 
repressed for whatever reason because you don't like that about yourself. Um, so a simple, you know how I love bringing up the Nazis. So a simple thing would be to, if you ask yourself, if I were an average German in the 1930s and I were recruited for the task of running a concentration camp, do I really think that I would have stood up for my beliefs or resisted or gone against the overwhelming tide in the opposite direction? Or would I have ended up being there as a cog in the machine, pressing buttons that resulted in countless deaths? And if you answer that question with, yes, I probably would have got swept away in the same way that in 2021 I get swept away with doom scrolling on Instagram. I'm talking about one. I'm talking about any person. Uh, I'm not Mm -hmm. personifying it exactly for James Hall. Yeah, you're not accepting that this is who you are. Maybe, or I am, but I don't want to just specifically talk about myself in this example because I I don't want to distract with some niche thoughts I have about myself. Um, But... If someone, if if any person thought that they could be a contributor to the Holocaust in the same way that they're a contributor to whatever problems of 2021 that absolutely do not identically compare. But so if we're talking about fake news or uh, body shaming, it's I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing as the Holocaust, but in the same way that your personality might be susceptible to influence in 2021 if you had been born in Germany at a certain time that would have resulted in you being recruited for working at a concentration camp can you honestly say that you would that you wouldn't have uh, just gone with the flow in the same way that you go with the flow in 2021 and is it is it that is it that the stark difference between the situation of basically killing people versus doom scrolling on social media means that you think you could have risen above it back in the 1930s or not and so basically if you can if you answer that question and say i think i would have been very susceptible to become a prison guard for the nazis in uh in world war 2 then that's a kind of recognition of your shadow. In other words, I know that as a human being who is unremarkable, I am susceptible to going with the flow and I am not strong enough to always stand against it and to always think critically. That's, that's a kind of um, acknowledging your, what Jung calls your shadow, acknowledging things that about yourself that are not flattering. But if you say... Well, obviously, I wouldn't have been a Nazi. I would have saved the world. Then uh, that might be considered to be a form of denial of the fact that you, as a human being, could have been manipulated. And are currently being manipulated. So I'm using that as an example of making the unconscious conscious. Yeah, it's a good example, yeah. And, you know, it carries on your theme of Nazism, you know, throughout every season of this podcast. So that's good as well. You know, keep, keep the listeners hooked into that subplot. 
Well, talking about uh, old white men, uh, outlandish and inaccessible speculations that Sigmund Freud came up with. What millennial wants that in 2021? Surely we can bin psychoanalysis and start with an absolutely blank page and forget everything that's happened before because it all came from Sigmund Freud. So is that a question? I, you, it very you, much you, is a question. You so you, flip, you flicked on the flippant switch. I don't know what you're saying there. What's OK, I flicked on the flippant switch. Let me ask that sensibly. It's very easy to dismiss something when there's such a strong association with its flawed founder so uh we don't we don't need to give a whole i mean we couldn't possibly but we don't need to give even well as much as you feel like you want to say about freud but i'm happy for you to not even say anything about the 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 context of freud right now in answer to this question but he's extremely famous and he invented psychoanalysis and he got some things wrong like objectively wrong and then there are other aspects to his thinking that have been rejected left right and center even by his contemporaries the most famous being Carl Jung so it's the whole field of psychoanalysis is extremely associated with Sigmund Freud and that's a problem because Freud got things wrong. Freud was not perfect. He was overly associated with the entire topic of what we're talking about today and it's, I don't think it's very common that people go into the nuances of the differences between Freud and Jung and then what happened after with humanist psychology coming from Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow and then what happened after that with the founders of cognitive behavioural therapy and then putting all of this information on the table, thinking about it objectively and critically to whatever extent you can and generously. In other words, I would like to consider all of this information before making an informed decision about how I will go into uh, therapy and consider why I value it or not and what I want to get out of it it's much easier to say psychoanalysis is a load of superstitious junk that came from an incredibly flawed man called Sigmund Freud I don't need that I'll spend my money on something else thank you very much do you think we should disregard Freud because of his flaws I don't think we should so that's why I'm reluctant to ask that question. But I think that people do. And so I'm struggling to make a question because I don't share the opinion. But I think it's worth noting that I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if anything I would expect any random person that I don't know to dismiss psychoanalysis because of Freud's shortcomings. Yeah, no doubt. So do we disregard vaccines and vaccinations because of the work that Edward Jenner did and, you know, some of the ethical and moral, you know, quandaries that face us if we would see him working in the same way in this modern day and age? No, we don't. You know, obviously some people are anti-vaccination um, for different reasons. But, um, you know, do we disregard everything we've learnt about diet and... Um, uh, eating disorders and nutrition because um, uh, King et al. in the 1950s experiments were 
um, basically unethical and probably not even scientifically sound? No, we don't. Do we disregard everything that we learn about tuberculosis and infectious diseases because the uh, Tuskegee um, experiments were racist? Do we disregard everything that we learned from the Stanford prison experiment because there's absolutely no way you would allow that to happen nowadays? No, we do not. But does the context of the initial findings of a lot of you know scientific groundwork uh, that theories slowly are developed on, does it give us a launch pad to slowly work towards a much more fair, hopeful and helpful understanding of things that can help improve a human experience, both in physical and psychological health? Do we use what potentially we would not do anymore to get there? Yeah, we do. That's... That's the way of the world. And, of course, there's loads of different areas where reparations need to be made and an understanding and an acceptance of harm and fault probably still needs to be um, verbalised and and discussed. But if you disregard the groundwork from 200 years ago because contextually, if it was brought into the modern day, it would be unacceptable, um, or you know, even perhaps proved invalid, it still does not mean that that work has not helped us to get to a place that is helping save lives. Excellent. That's exactly the kind of answer that I wanted. I'm so impressed with you today. But that has prompted a question. Like I've, I've thought of a way of actually asking a question rather than telling a story. However, this is kind of tough because I don't expect you to just have an answer, a good, an answer to this off the top of your head. But um, so don't worry if you don't have the, you know, the perfect answer to this question. But I, I suppose what I would like to know is um, what are some of the the things that Freud got wrong, famously so, that can easily be debunked now by any therapist or psychology practitioner that um, have maybe sort of like the fact that he was so famous for his views did a kind of like a damaging PR to the whole, his, whole, his whole game of psychoanalysis. I mean, he was obsessed with sex. Everything was to do with sex as far as he was concerned. And therefore, there's an element to which I think maybe in popular culture, psychoanalysis has is, is associated with the cliche of just, no matter what you say, the psychoanalyst says something like, well, don't you think that's your father's penis envy? <laughs> Hang on one second. So one thing I did want to just say, I think I might have just said... Um tuberculosis when I was talking about the Tuskegee study and I meant syphilis so just quick disclaimer because I was talking quickly and thinking quickly um, and if you look up Tuskegee syphilis study there's a really good article on Wikipedia most racist exploitative um, cruel inhumane study I think potentially that ever perhaps um so read up about that uh do i think uh Freud, so i think firstly there's a number of things at play here i think there might be huge amounts of misunderstanding um around freud's theories on psychosexual development and what that really means so you know the difference between a child's sexual and interpersonal and personality development and the uh the signposts the flags the determinants the precipitating factors that have a a 
you know, a, a sexual element. Um, so if you look at sexual from a child's point of view and you look at sexual from an adult's point of view, they're massively different things. But if you look at the repression of sexual development or if you look at the um, distortion of understanding of sexuality from a child's perspective and you think about all the problems that could cause, it makes it makes really clear sense because of how difficult people, even as adults, find sexuality, um, sexual expression, the act of love, the act of sex, the different fetishes and filias and and behaviours. It's still up to a certain point a taboo topic, um, and it's not something that everyone has the language or the the literacy to be able to talk about and explore happily and healthily and contextually appropriately so when a child is starting to have feelings which we know in the mod you know forget freud we know that from very early on you know a child can have can be aroused can have sexual feelings but has no appropriate context for them and has no words and there's no understanding of what that is so of course we know that that can cause psychological problems as well as behavioural problems. We know that. That's, that is a fact. But I think Freud was the f one of the first people to start thinking, fuck, well, if this is going on, oh, my God, it must cause everything. So, so he's, he sort of expanded it to the point that it could potentially cause all neurotic disorders, all kind of weird behavioural metamorphosis from thought to action. And he focused on that so much that I think potentially it was at the detriment of finding other things that could also possibly cause problems so there's that as a problem but also i think there's a massive distortion in the fact that a lot of it was translated a lot of it was you know from to our understanding a lot of it was experimental work and also i feel that the description of his personality and the way that he pushed stridently forward with these ideas in an incredibly powerful and male way has got in the way that the ideas were a development, a starting, a seed of thought, which now, uh, what is it, 150 years later, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants who are standing on the shoulders of giants, as well as a lot of the ideas and thoughts and theories around Freud's initial work have changed and developed and been discounted or been enhanced. Certainly, I know that in some areas the the problem that I seem to be either imagining or claiming exists uh, has been well and truly got over. And I'm thinking of the, uh, the philosopher Judith Butler, who is about as far down the road of open-mindedness towards self-identity and gender and everything that's in hot contestation in 2021 to do with um, sex and gender. She is open to everyone being able to express themselves however they want, be whoever they want to be, etc. And she is definitely a fan of Freud because pretty much every time I've ever heard her talking about anything, she brings up Freud. And as is the trope of lockdown zoom interviews where basically everyone is sat in front of a bookcase and if they've ever written a book then that's the book that's facing forwards <laughs> she uh she was 
uh, no different in the sense that she had a bookcase behind her. I don't think she necessarily had any of her books facing forward. So she, uh, she got brownie points for that, as far as I'm concerned. But she was gesturing to the bookcase behind her and saying sort of like everything on my left shoulder <laughs> out of the frame is, um, is to, to do with whatever topic. And she said, and, he, and here is my Freud shelf. <laughs> so uh, she's forgiven Freud. For being penis centric, yeah, um, and we do have to remember. Uh, Freud did say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> Listen, that is according to a small action figure I got from a comic shop uh, that has quotes of Freud on the back. I don't actually didn't actually ever hear him say that, and I don't think I've even read that. And in fact, when I tried to read Freud's interpretation of dreams, which of course is a translation, I found it so heavy going, I potentially gave up less than a halfway through. Um, So most of what I know from Freud is things like in uh, the classic psychological text by Gross, which lots of psychology students in their first year at uni will have, and probably um, A-level students as well. It would be like the descriptions and, and arguments and debate around Freud from books like that, you know, I... Like, it's not something, you know, in mental health nursing, they don't give you Freud to read as the first, you know, on the reading list. It's not there. Whereas Melanie Klein, some of her articles might be. And, you know, Aaron Beck and David Byrne and um, Carl Rogers, of course. (laughs) Of course. And uh, who's who's our other Carl? Uh, Jung, he might be there, but only in terms of some articles or references too. So Jung and Freud, who were there and started all this shit and may well (laughs) now in modern context be seen as misogynists. And, you know, also the, you know, you've got to think about the... um, You've got to think about the cultural context. This is like white culture we're talking about. So whether it's appropriate for, you know, uh, in the modern day, whether it's applicable to all nationalities all cultures to get the same positive outcome or the same use from that kind of therapy that it would apply to everyone or that those theories would apply to everyone it's really being challenged but at the same time there's loads of work being done on things that are appropriate um you know there's lots of transcultural work being done and it's it's you know not everyone does rely on freud but there's no need to write off him as you know no need to cancel him the next thing that I wanted to mention is from the from the graphic guide books, the introduction to psychoanalysis, they have a, a topic called The Unconscious is Mysterious, Not Mystical. And so Oh no, no, not those guides. So Dan is waving some Which books ones? at me. No, I'm talking about, you know, the illustrated like comic book style books that love you like those. so much. Absolutely love them. Yep. Uh, yeah, the one on psychoanalysis has a has a subheading the unconscious is mysterious, not mystical. And so I'm supposed to put this into a question. I, before we started, I told Dan that I'd written down all my questions, but I think what I've done is what I usually do is written down my stories. I find it much easier to just say a point and hope that the other person will react. So the unconscious is mysterious, not mystical. Go. <laughs> well, let's start by having a look at the definition of uh, mysticism, because I think that's really important to understand. So mysticism is a belief in the attainment through contemplation of truths inaccessible to the understanding, 
sometimes used of philosophical theories assuming agencies of which a rational account cannot be given. So potentially think things like uh, tarot reading, the Kabbalah, um, what else we got? Potentially some esoteric practices, uh, yoga, certain types of meditation, um, Sufi mystic dancing, trance states, potentially also the use of some psychedelics in certain cultures and certain contexts, as well as magic and Paul Daniels. <laughs> I met him in Tesco in Peterborough once. Carry on. Do you? Oh, that's nice. Debbie McGee now does an advert for like life insurance or something, and and she seems like really well. And I, I'm glad because, you know. Uh, anyway, why am I talking about Debbie McGee? Mysticism, yes. Um, so, what's the difference between mysticism and mystery? Now, this one, mystery as a topic, is not in my uh, dictionary of psychology, 1952 first. So, I'm going to just have to have a little look at what um, we get for definition of mystery. You're going to have to hold your horses for just one second. Yes, while I'm holding my horses, I can give a little mildly interesting tidbit that you might like. The Introducing Psychoanalysis Graphic Guide is co-written by Ivan Ward, who also edits the books that you were waving at me. So when I said, no, not those, just a moment ago, I meant no, not those, in the sense that those weren't the ones that I was referencing. But Ivan Ward has really got his foot in the door when it comes to introducing people to psychoanalysis. He's all over it the mini introductions and the graphic guide. I think I'm right in saying Ivan... So those books that you just waved at me, is Ivan Ward yep. written on... Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ivan Ward, yeah, yeah. Yeah, OK, so it's the same Ivan Ward. Yeah, yeah. Great, 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 great. We won't cancel him. OK, so mystery. Something that is a secret, one that is not fully understood or that baffles or eludes the understanding, an enigma. Yeah, I think that'll do it. So it, it's it's... It's something to discover. It's something, an unexplained or inexplicable event or phenomena. Uh, something that arouses curiosity or suspense because of something unknown, obscure or enigmatic. And so these are all the unconscious drives behind behaviour that causes what might be perceived as problems. Yeah, and I think that goes back to your idea of... Um, Part of the process, I wouldn't say the entire point, but part of the process of psychoanalysis is to like uncover the mystery of bring by bringing the uh, unconscious to the conscious. But then, okay, so the next thing I'm going to say is also not a question, so just uh, okay, covering okay. myself there and uh, making sure you I don't set you up for uh, an anticlimax. I'm just going to make a statement and then we'll see what happens when I've made it. But another thing that I think about, that I think I've gathered about psychoanalysis over the course of making this podcast is that it's not anymore, maybe it was in times of Freud, but it's not about the essentially the wise old person behind the desk gathering wisdom as they learn about you from what you say to them and with their divine mind delivering their verdict of what's wrong with you and how to fix you and then you can pay your money go away and be solved and happy for life 
Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely right. Yeah, it is not that anymore. Um, and I think potentially if we go back to our previous uh, cancel culture point, get rid of Freud, maybe that is one of the major problems that there was this, uh, you know, the therapist, or at least there's a there's a there's a perception that that was what therapy was like in the um, when when Freud was developing this these techniques was that it was about someone powerful in the know who understood more than the kind of feeble often hysterical woman who was at the whim of her physical body and unable to withstand the emotion that her delicate constitution inflicted upon her and this wise white man was able to fix her um yeah no i don't i don't think it's that at all anymore at least I would hope not. Um, and I've definitely never experienced it like that. It's very much a, a relationship development within the context of the therapeutic environment to help a person know themselves better, integrate things that they find really difficult and start to potentially understand how to develop their own behaviours and thinking so that they can understand their feelings and not be at the control and power of strong negative distressing emotions there's a guy called let me just get his name right rather than trying to remember it that's it jonathan shelder who is quite well known for a paper that he wrote that has been read and referenced a uh, sufficiently large number of times i could drop all kinds of numbers here but i don't think they're necessary for myself you or the listener uh the listener can go and find those numbers if they want to uh, feel like this the, 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 this paper is of sufficient gravitas. <laughs> so he wrote a uh, an article about essentially defending psychoanalysis, which is interesting, a bit like how I defended myself at the start of this episode. Methinks uh, mm, mm, mm. the lady doth defend too much. Mm-hmm. But I know of this from uh, the. I talked in one of the recent episodes about the Jungian gods. Um, but it was a. I, I'll see if I can link to this specific episode in the uh, show notes because it's it's an interview with this guy who has written this paper, and I just found that it was. It was the interview that had everything I wanted to hear in it. But at the same time, it's quite like it's I'm a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist. I think it's great. And I've professionally put together all these words that very competently lead you to the conclusion that it's great without it simply without you having to simply take my word for it that's it's kind of i feel like it's an exercise in that only because of the 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 way that he spoke in the interview and simply the fact that he is a practicing therapist saying therapy is worthwhile and shouldn't be dismissed um i can't help but keep in the back of my mind well you would say that wouldn't you dot 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 but it's useful it's a very interesting article. It's a very interesting interview. Um, I'll try and link to both of them. And uh, the reason I bring this up is because we've been talking about the uh, the sins of Freud. But it, I don't think it's not just Freud. I think there were a lot of essentially Freudian analysts 
in the early days and the teenage days of psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis is not that old in terms of i mean it's it's barely existed at all in the history of humankind as a as a as a recognized field of practice and so let's say in the in, in the in the childhood days it was freud and jung and melanie klein and and then in the teenage days it was people who learned from them and practiced as psychoanalysts and i think there were probably plenty of people who felt like they had learnt something that allowed them to take people's money and arrogantly analyse them, deliver a verdict and patronisingly tell them what they should do to shift their life into shape. <laughs> and I think, and he kind of references that a little bit in this paper with, with, with more insight than I've just given it. So uh, if, the, if the listener is interested... I will link to that paper that you can read. It's not very long. It's very digestible. It's not a... You don't need to have a PhD to be able to read it and get something from it. It's accessible, your favourite word. I almost, I almost missed an opportunity to use Dan's favourite word. It's accessible. <laughs> yeah, it is accessible. Um, and one of the good things about that article, which if you will just give me one moment, I'm going to open, um, is it has some really good explanations of um some of the core principles of psychoanalysis um and where did you get it from james his website um yeah and you can download it as a pdf so he was just talking about the process so the focus on affect and expression of emotion um, exploration of attempts to avoid distressing thoughts and feelings, the identification of recurring themes and patterns, discussion of past experience and a focus on the development. And then we have focus on interpersonal relationships and focus on the therapy relationship. And finally, we also have the exploration of fantasy life. So, you know, your fantasies as we know them, as well as dreams, as well as all the thoughts and feelings you have that you perhaps don't share with others. Um, and they're the kind of, like, core topics that he's looking at um, and that, you, that you, you focus on in psychodynamic psychotherapy. And, and I think that is a really good article to, you know, explain in much better way than you or I can, James. Really what that is all about and it gives some of the evidence behind it doesn't it well i also have a quote that uh is from that paper that is an is a an answer to what's the point in psychotherapy he says on, then. depending on the person and the circumstances psychological resources developed in therapy might include the capacity to have more fulfilling relationships make more effective use of one's talents and abilities maintain a realistically based sense of self-esteem tolerate a wider range of affect, have more satisfying sexual experiences, understand self and others in more nuanced and sophisticated ways, and face life's challenges with greater freedom and flexibility. So in other words, not just an indulgence in selfishness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that is a really lovely place to conclude. Unless you have any other you know pressing burning questions or issues that you'd like to discuss james one final question how much does it cost i mean that is a good question so there's different ways of getting into psychotherapy as as i said like you generally you pay for it um, a session can cost anywhere between 
15 to 20 pounds if you go for and search for low cost therapy and then put your local area in. Um, and often you'll start with a therapist who's perhaps in their last year of training because there's a lot of training for psychodynamic or psychoanalytical psychotherapy. Um, <clears throat> And going to the British Association of uh, Psychologists and Psychotherapists, I think is what it's called. It's like the BAPC, if I remember right. Um, and and having a look at the the different you know therapists in your area, um, uh, anywhere between fifteen to twenty pounds for one of those sort of um, trainee therapists who are often very very good anyway, um, uh, all the way up to you know a hundred hundred and twenty five pounds for an hour session. And of course, a lot of therapists will negotiate these rates, especially if you're going to go in for, you know, longer term therapy or more than once a week. Um, so it is not cheap. It's not um, something that is readily affordable to everyone. But it is something that I think that you can get for a very reasonable hourly rate if you look around. So the, the, the modern day Irving Yalom in his prime operating in 2021 so I'm not talking about the, the lucky few who still have Irvin Yalom as their therapist in San Francisco in 2021. I'm not asking how much they pay or how they managed to get in that position. But if there were someone as wise and experienced as Irvin Yalom in 2021, as a, not a trainee, not someone in their final year of whatever, um, would they be in the upper bracket that you just said something like 100 pounds a session or would they be even more than that no my guess would they would be in the upper bracket 100 125 pounds a session but then if you're talking about five times a week that's 500 pounds a week yeah it is james you're right (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to actually put a number on it to conceptualize it as opposed to having some vague it's expensive in my head because well well, yeah. So for, for myself, I started with Sarah when she was in, I think, her final year of training. So I went once a week for that final year. And that was about £40 a session. I worked with Sarah for eight years. And after about 18 months, started going twice a week. And at the end of the eight years, she was still charging me £40 a session. So at one stage, I was paying £80 a week for two sessions. If I'd have seen her when she, you know, if I'd started seeing her when she was fully qualified, it'd probably be somewhere more like £60, £65, £70 a session. And that would have been twice a week. So that would have been £140 a week. So that would have been <laughs> more money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking back to when my rent for a enormous room in a big house in Leeds was £65 a week. Well, that's very good. So perhaps if you don't want psychotherapy, you could rent a room in Leeds. <laughs> well, I'm giggling, but it's it's valid. But it, I mean, how else could it be? Because it's not something that's scalable. Because, for example, if you're taking a class in political science and you're doing it as an evening class you might have 20 people in the room and so you you could have the best teacher but whatever price they put on their time is divided by 20 because there are 20 people in the room paying for it but with psychotherapy it's only ever one-on-one so whatever the price that person chooses to or at least has to put on their time so they'll have a a minimum price that they have to put um, you have to pay that because you're not sharing it with anyone else. It just no, doesn't scale. Ha- 
However, there is also psychodynamic and psychoanalytical group type therapy, which of course is a lot, lot cheaper. You might expect to pay five to ten pounds, maybe fifteen or twenty pounds maximum a session. Um, and and that, although it, of course it isn't that one to one, that very much still helps you explore the way you interact with others, the same thoughts and feelings. And you know, a good therapist often there's two therapists who will um, run a group, not always, but but often so you, you will still get uh, the same kind of questions and explorations from the therapist it just won't be one-on-one and you'll learn as well from the other people in the group perhaps we should look at group work one of these weeks james and also i should say that when i moved into that room in leeds it had a giant hole that was that had been chewed from the basement and enormous rats were able to come through and so and and also the carpet was really stinky, so I had to take out the carpet, put a new carpet down, fill up the hole so that no rats would come back. And it was also quite cold in winter. It, was, uh, it wasn't the nicest room, so I wouldn't spend £65 a week on that. I'd much rather spend it on therapy. <laughs> yeah. So, in essence, don't move to Leeds, get a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, excellent. Uh, d- dear listener, thank you so much for um, taking the time to spend with us today and um i will see you next time so from me daniel p brown in the london private practice podcast studios it's a goodbye and remember sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and i suppose sometimes a penis is just a penis from the ordinary boys preston 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 from the ordinary boys it's a wonderful story